species. Athletics beyond coronavirus. Hillel Cutler's ABCs. Athletics beyond coronavirus. Hillel Ascribe Part one of my two-part conversation with Washington Nationals broadcaster Bob Carpenter included his covering the team under pandemic restrictions in 2020's abbreviated season. Bob's description of feeling his way through a darkened stadium provided an apt metaphor for the highly unusual circumstances. We also discussed the Nationals' unexpected run to the World Series Championship in 2019 and looked forward to 2021. Please join me now for part two with Bob Carpenter. A loyal listener of the program and a big Nationals fan living in Baltimore, Scott Stepper wrote in to ask you whether after the city of Washington lost two franchises and then went 30 plus seasons without a team, does Washington feel like it's a baseball town to you? Absolutely, yes. Hmm. Um, I, I, I recognize right from opening day 2006 that Washington was a baseball town. You know, the Nats were way over 500 at the All-Star break in 05. And it looked like they were going to make the playoffs in that first year in D.C. after leaving Montreal. Well, they kind of had a second half collapse and they didn't make it. Then the team was really bad and building for a while. You know, the drafting of Steven Strasburg and then Bryce Harper kind of really, that's turned things around. And then, of course, Ryan Zimmerman was there through the whole thing. But, um, you know, um, our, we have knowledgeable fans in D.C. A lot of them didn't get to go to baseball games. Some of them went to the Orioles games for those three decades, you know, those 33 years after the second version of the Senators left and went to Texas. The first one, of course, went to Minnesota. But, uh, no, our fans, they know the game as well as any fans around baseball. I don't really buy the thing that New York and Boston and St. Louis and Chicago – their fans really know baseball and nobody else does. I mean, that's absurd. Every, every baseball market has fans who are totally knowledgeable about the game. Some might have more than others because some teams draw more than others to the ballpark. Uh, but I, I would put our fans up against any fans of baseball as far as their knowledge of the game. Uh, they know when to cheer and they know what not to cheer. And, uh, you know, and how they reacted the ballpark to different situations. I listen closely to, to those sort of things as I go around baseball. And, and I would put our fans up there with any group in, in the major leagues. Bob, I wanted to take a trip back, further back in time. As you mentioned, 38 years in major league broadcasting at this point. How did you get into broadcasting in the first place as your career? Well, um, my sister, Judy got a job with the Cardinals when I was 14 years old in 1967. I was already a big Cardinal fan growing up seven miles from the ballpark in South St. Louis. I was 10 years, I was nine years old. No, wait a minute. I was 10 years old when Stan Musial retired. So I get, once I was kind of aware of baseball and my dad was taking me to the ball games at old Bush stadium, that's two stadiums ago. 
and I got to see Stan Musial play in person as a little guy. Uh, you know, Stan the man, he was my guy. I was 11 years old when the Cardinals beat the Yankees in the World Series in 64. Ironically, the first year after Stan Musial retired. And that, of course, uh, you know, Bob Gibson, Lou Brock, he came over in a trade. The trading deadline was June 15th back then. And uh, the Cardinals had a right-handed pitcher named Ernie Brolio, who won 20 games the previous year. And Bing Devine, the general manager, went down to the clubhouse and said to Johnny Keene, the manager, he said, hey, I got a chance to get Lou Brock, but we got to give up Ernie Brolio. Johnny Keene looked at Bing Devine and said, what are you waiting for? And they got Lou Brock, and the rest is history. And he, of course, goes to the Hall of Fame. And sadly, he and Bob Gibson are two of the great Hall of Famers, you know, who passed away in the last year. So, you know, when you grow up in a place like that, and you get to see Stan Musio, you get to see a World Series team. Years later, when I became a broadcaster with the Tulsa Oilers, that's how I got to Tulsa in 1976. They were the Cardinals AAA. Guess who the manager was? My, one of my boyhood heroes who played third base for the Cardinals, Kenny Boyer, who was the National League MVP in 1964. That year they went to the World Series, and he had a grand slam in the World Series. So anyway, um, you know, you grow up in that situation. I always wanted to be a baseball writer. I, you know, I, I was really interested in writing. When I was a kid, I used to write articles on the, the Cardinals and the Blues. The St. Louis Blues were born that same year in 1967. Uh, when my sister went to work for the Cardinals, it was an exciting time. We still had the football Cardinals there. The St. Louis Hawks of the NBA had just departed to go to Atlanta, but I, I got to see Bob Pettit and Cliff Hagan and Zelmo Beatty play when I was a kid. My dad took me downtown uh, to the old Keel Auditorium to see the St. Louis Hawks. So if you grew up in St. Louis or any you know town where you really were into major league sports, uh, that kind of led to a lot of different things. Hillel. I got into high school, did a lot of writing. Um, I got to do a little work on a little in-house TV station we had at McBride High School in St. Louis. Uh, by the time I got into college, I really was attracted to broadcasting, and I wanted to be Jack Buck. I wanted to be a radio play-by-play -play baseball guy. Later, I would get a chance to work with Jack on TV and on radio uh, with the Cardinals, and that was pretty cool. Um, and so, you know, that, that's kind of how the whole thing evolved. And in college, I was on the bleachers when it was cold, holding a microphone with a clipboard on my hands, announcing NAIA college soccer games on the campus radio station, baseball in the spring, basketball during the winter. Uh, didn't get paid any money for that. Just did it because I wanted to do it. I went to the station manager and said, hey, can I broadcast the soccer games, the baseball games, and the basketball games. Nobody's doing it. And all we're doing is spinning records in the middle of the afternoon. And he said, yeah, have at it. So we'd string a line from the control board out of the dorm. Uh, the radio station was in a basement of one of the dorms. We literally, the engineer guy, plugged a line into the control board, unrolled a line a couple of hundred yards all the way out to the bleachers so that I could sit on the bleachers and call those games. And that's really how I got started in broadcasting. And um, I would work weekends at some of the uh, local radio stations in the Kansas City area when I was at UMKC. And um, it's interesting because those soccer games I did, two to three years later, those, those got me a soccer job with the Tulsa Roughnecks 
of the North American Soccer League. That job, soccer, got me on ESPN and got me on USA Network because very few guys back in the mid-70s even knew how to announce a soccer game. There were a handful of us back then, Jimmy Carvelis with the Cosmos, uh, you know, some other guys around the country, uh, you know, and uh, it just uh, it led to a lot of things. So I did a lot of things. Soccer, you mentioned I did golf and tennis for USA Network. I got to do the U.S. Open Tennis Championships in 85 over in Flushing. I got to go to Augusta three times for the Masters, 86, 87, 88. Jack Nicholas won one of those years. Uh, NCAA basketball games, uh, you know, college football bowl games. But my first love was always baseball. And I got out of college in 1975. I didn't get my first Major League Baseball job with the Cardinals until nine years after that. It took a long time and a lot of local, regional, running around the country stuff, high school games, you name it, uh, high school football for $25 a game and uh, boys and girls basketball games for $15 a game doing those back-to-back on a Friday night. And uh, so I you know, had to do a lot of different things, but that, that's kind of how I got into it. Uh, but baseball was always my first love. And I always dreamed of a day when I could do just baseball at the end of my career. And now for the last four years, I've been able to do that. And, uh, you know, we'll see how long it goes for the next couple of seasons. And, uh, you know, uh, maybe I'll make it two more years after this, I could make it to 40 years in the big leagues. And, uh, you know, it's just a number. Uh, but I, I don't really see myself in the booth when I'm 75 years old and, and really old, like some of, you know, some of the great announcers did that. Uh, I don't see me being able to do that. Uh, you know, my, I have, I have a couple of daughters scattered around the country and family in different places. And, uh, you know, we'd like to hop in the car and take off for a month and go, you know, go see friends and family. So, um, I've had, I've had a good career. I've really enjoyed it. We'll see how long it goes. Were there broadcasters who you worked with or who you reached out to who were sort of mentors in a way or helped you along toward toward establishing yourself in baseball well i you know my rookie year i got to work with jack buck and mike shannon the the two longtime cardinal guys on tv uh that was you know that was a thrill for me and uh you know i don't i don't think jack ever sat me down and put his arm around me and say hey kid here's what you got to do but you know i i i'm very observant i would pick out certain people that i worked with and there were some of them I wanted to emulate, and there were some of them I did not even want to consider that. Uh, you know, I, I tried to pick out the best people that I could see in person or on the radio or on TV and not really copy them, but maybe borrow a little nuance from them here and there. So, you know, Jack had an, Jack had an influence on me because he was my guy early in my career. And, uh, you know, I, I, I listened to Vince Scully. Uh, got to got to meet him later. Uh, my first day in the big leagues, opening day, 1984, Cardinals at Dodger Stadium. Vince Gully's 10 feet to my right. Ooh. Jack Buck's 10 feet to my left. And I'm sitting in the booth in between. And I'm thinking, what in the world am I doing here? And so, uh, you know, I was a big fan of Ernie Harwell. Got to know Ernie later when I did ESPN games and went to Detroit a lot. One of the most delightful, sweet, nice people who sounded as good as he did when his career ended as he did, uh, you know, in the middle of his career. Uh, got to know Harry Callis pretty well in Philadelphia. Once I got to D.C. and we played the Phillies a lot. 
and, uh, you know, just different guys around baseball. I met Harry Carey a couple of times. You know, I, I grew up listening to Harry and Jack on Camwex Radio with Joe Garagiola in St. Louis. But, you know, you can't emulate Harry Carey. Harry was – you can't try to go on the air and sound like Harry Carey. He's Harry Carey. Nobody else can do that. So uh, – but I enjoyed, you know, meeting him on a, a couple of occasions. But, uh, you know, uh, Milo Hamilton was a great friend of mine, a longtime Cubs guy, Astros guy. Other teams, uh, Atlanta Braves, he called Hank Aaron's uh, home run that, that broke the Babes record. You know, guys who were really nice to me in my career and, uh, you know, diff just different people around baseball. Worked for the Mets for two years as a part-timer in 92 and 93. Had an amazing experience working on TV with Ralph Kiner because you never knew what Ralph was going to say next. And Tim McCarver was in the booth. And sometimes we do a three-man booth. Uh, I was replacing Tim on the weekends because he was off doing his CBS games. But on Sunday, Tim would come back, and uh, they'd put me in the booth, all three of us, and Ralph would say something, and Tim and I would just kind of look at each other and just chuckle, you know. Uh, but got to know Bob Murphy and young Gary Cohen, who was on the radio with Murph back then before Gary made the switch to television. So, you know, a lot of different people. I'm sure I've left some out. But, uh, you know, it's the great thing about announcing, Hillel. You bring your own personality and your own abilities to the table, but you're either a liar or you have a terrible memory if you don't acknowledge that people you heard early in your life and early in your career didn't have a big influence on you. And I, I know a lot of those guys did. And, uh, you know, I'm pleased to see women getting into play-by-play -play now. I think there are some terrific women uh, broadcasters doing play-by-play -play and and, you know, analyst jobs all over the country, not only in baseball, but in other sports as well. So uh, it, to me, it's the unique thing about play-by-play. -play. You know, when you're a reporter, you can prepare your questions. You can kind of figure out how an interview is going to go. Play-by-play, -play, once that ball starts flying around the field or the court or the puck, and I've done some hockey, goes flying around the rink, you have to immediately put into words coherently and clearly what you're seeing happen right before your eyes. I think that served me well last year when we were doing the games off of a monitor. Uh, baseball might be the easiest game to do off a monitor as opposed to football, basketball, or hockey. So I admire what those guys did. But to me, that's, that's the essence of play-by-play. -play. You know, you can talk about chatting in between pitches and telling stories, and Vince Scully was great at that. And other guys were great at that. But to me, the mark of a good play-by-play -play announcer is what does he or she do once that ball is in play, to let you know exactly what's going on during that frenetic few seconds when the ball's flying around, runners are going all over the place, and all hell breaks loose. When you can keep your cool and do a good job in those situations, to me, that's the essence of what my job is all about. Well, that, that, that leads me to ask whether there have been any occasions that you can think of in which you really had to ad-lib on the fly. There's no way you could have possibly planned or even thought of an event in a possible eventuality you really just had to wing it whether it was a power yeah. outage or something crazy happened or something dangerous maybe something that really had to you really had to call on deep reserves of experience and 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 appropriateness and knowledge to handle it in the booth yeah i, I think experience you know the reps you get over the years uh, you know jack buck once told me he said kid every day you go to the ballpark you're gonna do something you've never seen before well, it doesn't happen every day, but it happens a lot. 
you know, and we have bunt plays where the ball gets thrown down the line and runners are going all over the place. You have inside the park home runs. You have guys jumping over the wall to pull back a homer. You got to be careful because if you call a home run and the ball gets caught, that's probably the worst sin a play-by-play announcer can commit. So, you know, sometimes you have to wait a second or two to make sure that you're calling that play correctly. So, you know, football, fumbles, interceptions, basketball, turnovers, you know, fast breaks back and forth. Every sport presents its own challenges. Baseball might be unique in that you have these times, and sometimes it's a lot of time where nothing is happening other pitch, other than pitches, balls and strikes and foul balls, and all of a sudden, boom, out of nowhere, here comes a home run or here comes something crazy that's going to happen. A ball goes back to the screen on strike three, and a guy gets to first base with two outs. Inning should have been over, and then the team scores three or four runs. You know, uh, you know I, I think it's experience and repetitions that get you through those times. And then, you know, you have to build suspense if there's a no-hitter. I think I've called six no-hitters in my career. Max Scherzer had two mm-hmm. with the Nats. Jordan Zimmerman had one before that. Uh, David Palmer of the Montreal Expos threw one against the Cardinals my rookie season. It was rained out after five innings, <laughs> but it was a no-hitter. And, uh, and then when I was with the Cardinals, two rookie pitchers threw no-hitters in consecutive years, Jose Jimenez at Arizona and Bud Smith at uh, San Diego. So, you know, you have to kind of uh, build the suspense as those games go along, know what to say, know what not to say. And, uh, you know, don't tip your hand too quick, quickly and, uh, you know, hopefully have a great call at the end when, when uh, you know, when what you're hoping to call finally happens. Bob, I wanted to ask you how you developed your scorecard. I, I know that you have used the scorecard and you've marketed it and it's used in use by many, many broadcasters across the country, both on the professional and also collegiate and other levels. And where did that come from? I mean, I, I've used different scorecards, including from a board game, you know, the Stratomatic baseball game. I've had that for many years and I would photocopy it and I still have used that to this day. Something very, very basic. Um, What, what was the lack that you thought that yours added that helped you in, in documenting games and, and, and how did you get that off the ground in terms of marketing and, um, and, you know, distribution standpoint, popularizing it among people in the game? My book goes back to my rookie season, 1984. When I did my first major league games, I was doing the games out of a softball scorebook that I bought at Bucks Sporting Goods in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing major league games, and I'm thinking, there's got to be something better than this out there. I didn't know of anything out there. My book is designed for broadcast, and it's patterned after a lineup card. I got the idea when I was looking at a lineup card. I don't know where the Cardinals were. We were on the road somewhere. And I was looking at Whitey Herzog's lineup card. It had the lineup, and at the bottom of the card, it had the extra men in the dugout, left-handed hitters, right-handed hitters, switch hitters. Adjacent to that was the available bullpen guys for the other team, left-handed pitchers, right-handed pitchers. And I'm thinking, you know what? That would be awesome to have that at my disposal, at my fingertips late in the ballgame, to know what the matchups might be. So, you know, the Cardinals might have Willie McGee on the bench that night, and the other team might have a tough left-handed pitcher out of the bullpen. 
I could say, hey, maybe we see these two guys match up in the eighth inning coming up. So anyway, I went to Whitey, and I said, Whitey, can I take a couple of those uh, lineup cards home with me or back to the hotel? Um, I'm, de I'm designing my own baseball scorebook. And he said, sure, kid, here, you know, take, take as many as you want. I went back to the hotel. I got out two eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper, got out my ruler and got out a pencil and aligned a grid that had 13 innings in it. I think, well, it might've only had like 12 innings and it had at the top, it had a box that shows you where, so, you know, let's say that, let's say your lineup is there right below your lineup is the extra men. And over on the side of that same page is a box with the opposing bullpen guys in it. You never have to flip the page over to see who the opposing guys are that might be facing your hitters. It also had a box at the top, which I thought was important. That was the defense. So I could immediately look up and I could see the defensive grid. You know, you fill in the names before the game of who's in left, right, and center, short and second up the middle, third base, first base at the corners and the catcher. And uh, I wanted to do something that had me able to call the game without having to do any guesswork while doing the game. I want to have everything laid out in front of me. And that's why I designed the book the way it is. So if you look at my book, it's similar to a lineup card you would see in the dugout. But the bullpen guys, the bench guys, and the defense, they're all there. And, and you can see it all on one page. And then when the other team comes up to bat, you know, you flip over to the other side of the book, and it's all laid out on that side. So that got started in 1984. I didn't market it until 1995. We sent out brochures to all the minor league teams trying to attract minor league announcers. The response was pretty good. In 1997, um, a friend of mine designed a website, bcscorebook.com. We've been online for 23 years now, uh, selling the books online. Uh, in 1997 and 98, when Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were hitting a ton of home runs, I had fans coming up to me in St. Louis saying, you know, this is history. We want to keep score, but your book, it's too big. So I designed a book um, that I'm showing you right now. This, you know, you're seeing the regular broadcast book here. This is the smaller fan book. You know, you can see the difference in size. You can take this to the ballpark. A lady can put it in her purse. A guy can slip it under his arm. And this is the, this is the fan book that, uh, that I established back in 1998. And you right, might it's see like a square shape, square as opposed to. Yeah, it's almost a square, not quite. And uh, interesting cover photo here that you can see. Yes. I thought yeah. it was the most beautiful shot of a ballpark I've ever seen. That for sure it, is the old Bush Stadium, right? That's old Bush Stadium. Okay. 1960, in the batter's box, if you could see it up close, the bat is straight up in the air. It's Stan Musial batting against Lou Burdett of the Milwaukee Braves. I saw this photo by the Cardinals Clubhouse at, uh, in St. Louis. I fell in love with the photo. The guy who took this photo, Jack Zert of the St. Louis Globe Democrat, who I think has since passed away, he gave me permission to use this for my scorebooks. He said, as long as I didn't give any anybody any copies of this picture, he would give me permission to use this on the scorebook, which I started doing in about 2004. And he said, here's the slide, and now you have to give me $300. <laughs> so I gave him $300 for the photo. Now, a blown up version of this hangs on my wall here in my office. 
It's about a 36 by 24 print of this picture. And across the outfield with a silver Sharpie is the autograph of Stan Musial. I showed Stan the photo when I ran into him in St. Louis. He signed it for me. And that's something that will be my greatest keepsake of all time. Because to me, with the sunset behind the grandstand, the lights are on, it's dusk, it's old-time baseball, Lou Burdett and Stan Musial. Um, it, I, I just fell in love with it. And when I saw that, I said, this, this has to be the cover of my scorebook. And that's the fan book that we designed back in 97. Right. It's a beautiful picture. I know that that's the picture that's on your website as the backdrop. And, it is. Um, it is. And, and as you say, it's striking that it's not only at sunset, but you get a, a sense of the whole scope of the grounds because it's taken from center field and you kind of see the whole seating yeah. area, the whole field really. Ahead and of you me. know what? Back then, when I was a kid, the game started at 8.05 in the summer. Uh, it was, you know, it was still kind of light then. And if Bob Gibson was pitching and it was a home game, you were in your car by 10.15. You know, and as games got longer, you know, and TV became import more important uh, to clear time for local news and all that stuff. They, you know, they started moving games to seven o'clock and earlier. Uh, but back when, back in the, in the late sixties, when I was a kid, we would go to the ball game and first pitch was eight Oh five. So what do you remember from the experience of watching a game in this really terrific old park where people from Rogers Hornsby and Rogers Hornsby and, um, George Sisler with the Browns and on and on until Gibson's prime and the beginning of Brock's career that you got to see a game. Did you appreciate that even at that young age? I, I, I would give anything to go back to my first. I remember the first game I ever went to. My dad took me to the Cardinals and the Pirates. I think Smokey Burgess hit a couple of home runs and it was a slugfest. I think the Pirates beat the Cardinals like 17 to seven. I think it was like 1958 or 59. So I was either five or six years old. We were sitting in the upper grandstand on the first base side. I don't remember the crowd being very big. And I remember a foul ball coming our way and a, a, it hit about three rows up behind us, you know, and I reached for it and I, I couldn't get it. And this gentleman just picked it up and put it right in the shirt pocket of his shirt. And I was just staring at him, begging him to give me that baseball. <laughs> <laughs> and he never looked at me. Uh, but I remember sitting in the upper grandstand, first base side, third base side, the bleachers in left field, the, pavil the pavilion in right field. Uh, they had to put a screen in front of that right field pavilion because Stan Musial, if they hadn't put a screen there, Stan Musial would have hit 540 home runs. He hit 475, but it was only 310 down the line, kind of like old Yankee Stadium. Mm -hmm. But they put a screen in front of that pavilion out to the 354 mark to uh, prevent cheap home runs, as they said. And Stan used to pepper that screen with doubles. It's one of the reasons he had, you know, I think the National League record for doubles when he retired and also the National League record for hits with 3,630 before Mr. Aaron came along and broke that record. But, uh, you know, a great old ballpark. Um, my friends and I used to take the, the city bus up to the ballpark. It wasn't in the greatest part of town. You know, you wouldn't want your, uh, you, you know, you wouldn't want your kids going there alone on the bus these days, but we did that. And, uh, you know, I think it was probably five cents to ride the bus from there, uh, you know, to get up there, 10 cents, something like that. 
I remember getting a drink for a quarter and a pennant for a dollar and popcorn, you know, for 30 cents or whatever. And, uh, you know, it was just a, it was just a great old thing. And, you know, uh, Hillel, if, if I could do one thing as a time traveler, I'd like to go back and sit in that ballpark. And I'd like to go back and sit in other ballparks that I never had a chance to as a kid. I'd give anything to watch the Dodgers, uh, you know, play the uh, Giants at the Polo Grounds or Ebbets Field, you know, give anything to watch the Yankees and the Red Sox play at Old Fenway or Old Yankee Stadium, you know, things like that. I've gotten to go to Fenway a lot, Yankee Stadium and, and Wrigley as a broadcaster. But, you know, that old-time baseball, when I see the old-time footage, like, in, you know, Ken Burns' documentary and all that, and they're able to colorize that, and, and those, those old highlights are in color, and those Dodger blue letters just jump off mm. the uniform at you, and the Cardinals with the birds on the bat, and the NY for the Yankees, you know, I, I wish I could go back in time as, as, as a guy my age right now and sit in those ballparks with the love of the game as a kid and, and see what that was really like back then. You know, with the men wearing their white shirts and their ties and, you know, they got their straw hats on and things like that. I mean, it, it was a whole different thing than it is now. And, you know, uh, living in Oklahoma now for 44 years, I'd love to go back and see Mickey Mantle hit a home run at Yankee Stadium, you know. Uh, we saw him hit home runs at Bush Stadium in the World Series in 1964. But, you know, you never got to see the guys from the other league. Cardinals hadn't been to a World Series since 1948. So, you know, that was a 16-year drought, and I wasn't around then. So, um, you know, getting to see uh, Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford at Bush Stadium when I was a kid, that was even on TV, because uh, I didn't get to go to any of those games. That was that was pretty thrilling. Uh, to see that sort of thing and and those legendary people play the game. I did get to go to the games in 67 to see Carl Yastrzemski and, you know, the Red Sox, 68, Mickey Lolich, you know, Willie Horton, Al Kaline, those great uh, Tigers who absolutely broke our hearts in game seven when Jim Northrup hit the line drive to center and Kurt Flood fell down and, and they beat Bob Gibson and uh, who had been so dominant in that World Series. But, you know, you always have those memories, Hillel, but you sure wish you could go back and see him in person again. Well, I'll tell you, Bob, I wanted to wrap up by asking about one of my favorite topics as a writer, which is the relationships between people, especially people and families, and how that progressed over time, and in this case, particularly revolving around baseball. And I had the pleasure of meeting with you and your sister on the eve of the, or during, actually, the Cardinals National Series in Washington in, in 2012 right. and was just so drawn by your closeness and the fact that you grew up together of course and you also worked in the same field which is baseball and you even worked for the same employer for a good bit of time which is the Cardinals. Ten years yeah. Can you tell me what it was like growing up w with each other following baseball to the extent that you did together and then Fast forward to a completely different part of point in your yeah. lives, and you're working together in different jobs, but still working for the same organization. Yeah, it was interesting because Judy was nine years older than me. Uh, I have an older sister, Kathy. There's about a year and a half between her and Judy. Then there was a nine-year gap between Judy and me. And then I have a younger sister, Mary, 
who's a, a year and a half uh, basically younger than me. So it's like we had two, my, my parents had two different sets of kids. <laughs> so there was this gap. And, you know, my sister, Kathy, I mean, she got married when I was 10 years old, then she was out of the house. And I think Judy got married when I was 16. And, uh, and then uh, that, that was a couple of years after she'd gone to work for the Cardinals. In fact, when I was 16, that's when I started working for the team. You had to be 16 to work at the ballpark. And I, I, I didn't care what I was doing, if I was an usher or a concessionaire. So I got a job as an usher at Bush Stadium when I turned 16 during the 1969 season. And so, um, you know, when I was 14 years old, all of a sudden my sister was working in group sales for the Cardinals. They gave her two season tickets. My, my younger sister, Mary, were at the ballpark every night if we could be unless Judy gave the tickets to somebody else. And I'm sure she did once in a while just to make us stay home here and there. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was really cool. And, uh, you know, having a sister working for the Cardinals and uh, then starting to work at the ball club myself, it was 1984 when we were united. Uh, by then she was the, uh, you know, the top female uh, ranking uh, female in the organization. She was the uh, basically secretary, assistant, administrative assistant, um, director of, uh, you know, baseball administration for a whole bunch of general managers going all the way back to Bing Devine. Mm -hmm. I mean, Bing Devine, Stan Musial, um, John Claiborne, who later went to Boston, I think, and started Nesson, the New England Sports Network, uh, Whitey Herzog, Joe McDonald, Dal Maxville, um, John Mozeliak, of course, modern day, and before that, before him, of course, uh, Walt Jockety, who had some amazing years with the Cardinals and with Tony La Russa. I think I got them all, but she was, she was the administrative assistant to all of those GMs. And uh, I, I idolized Bing Devine. And when I got the Cardinal job in 94, uh, actually 84, he was kind of retired by then, but he was at the ballpark all the time. I would see him in the press box. I, I'm sure I drove him crazy. Uh, he helped me get my first minor league job with the Tulsa Oilers in 1976 doing radio here. And uh, I, I just loved Mr. Devine. And I just tried to pick his brain as much as I could. Neil Russo, who was the Cardinals beat writer for the uh, St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Uh, Bob Burns was uh, one of the main guys with the St. Louis Globe Democrat. And, uh, you know, I, I just, and uh, Bob Bragg, a great writer who won, uh, you know, the ultimate, the Spink award, the ultimate award for writers. And then in later years, Rick Hummel, getting to know all of those men through Judy, because she had a, such a fantastic relationship with all of them. And uh, it was very cool. So, you know, I'd come to the ball game, come to the ballpark to do my job. And I'd always stop in the office to see her. And I remember one day I, I, I heard something on the radio about a potential trade that was going to, going to, uh, you know, take place. And I said, Hey, I'm, I'm hearing something might be going on. And she said, Hey, buzz off your media. I'm not telling you anything. And that was my sister. There, there was no way her credibility was going to be threatened even by her goofy little brother walking in, sniffing around, you know, some information about a, about a possible trade. So, uh, you know, and it was tough on her when I left the, when the Cardinals let me go at one point, then I came back and then ultimately my job was disappearing with over the air TV in St. Louis. And I had to make a decision to either stay there and work part-time or go to Washington and work full-time. And that's why I took the nationals job in 06. So in 2005, our time together 
with the same team came to an end. But, you know, I, I went there as a visiting broadcaster. I'd camp out in her office, which was right outside the Cardinals clubhouse at uh, the current Bush Stadium. And, um, you know, uh, we just we spent a lot of time together around baseball. I learned a lot from her about how teams work, how front offices work, things that you should and shouldn't do when you come to the ballpark the way you should and should not act when you get in that clubhouse. Cause she said a lot of people go in there and make absolute fools out of themselves. And so I had a good mentor there and she taught me a lot about the game and a lot about being around the game and uh, how to act around players and GMs and umpires and other broadcasters. I owe, I owe a lot of that to my sister. And again, she had 52 years with one team, <clears throat> which is absolutely remarkable and uh, just retired two years ago. Well, Bob Carpenter, it's been a delight, and thank you for speaking with me on Hello Colors ABC's Athletics Beyond Coronavirus. Let's hope that we can put coronavirus behind us very soon, and hope you stay healthy. Thank you, sir. You stay healthy, stay safe, and, and hopefully the next time we chat, we will be talking about how great it is to be back in the broadcast booth and on the road as we cover our favorite team. So uh, uh, my sincere thanks for uh, what you have meant to my family over the years. Uh, Judy was over the moon with that story you wrote, and so was our family back in 2012. And uh, thank you so much for having me on.